It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Tonight on Moment of Truth, we bring you a special rebroadcast of a Journalist for Human Rights webinar regarding mental health and Indigenous journalists. It was originally recorded on May 13th. The moderator is Brandy Morin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest JHR Indigenous Reporter Program webinar series, uh, supported by RBC Future Launch and sponsored by APTN National News. Today, we have an amazing panel of journalists and experts here to talk about mental health for Indigenous journalists. Now, without further ado, I'll turn things over to our moderator, Brandy Moray, an award-winning French, Cree, and Iroquois journalist from Treaty 6, who has written extensively about the challenges facing Indigenous journalists and the importance of their ongoing work. Thank you, Sarah. Tanse, everybody. Thank you for joining us today for this uh, important conversation on mental health and self-care in the media. I'm really proud to share our panelists for today. First off, we have Mira Selva. She's the Deputy Director of the Reuters Institute and Director of their Fellowship programs. Mira is an accomplished senior journalist with experience in Europe, Asia, and Africa. She is the deputy director of the Reuters Institute, and her recent work includes studying how the pandemic has affected journalists' mental health. Welcome, Mira. We also have Anna McKenzie. She is a child welfare reporter for Indigenous. Anna is uh, a Pasquawak Cree reporter with Indigenous uh, covering child welfare on so-called Vancouver Island. We also have Leonard Monkman, reporter with the CBC Indigenous. Leonard is Anishinaabe from Lake Manitoba First Nation. He's a reporter with CBC's Indigenous unit and has been with them for five years. We also have Adeline Bird. Adeline is an Afro-Ojibwe author, broadcaster, and director, and a member of Rolling River First Nation. She's a freelance host at Sportsnet and wrote Be Unapologetically You, a self-love guide for women of color. Again, it's amazing to have all of you join today. I'm going to start with Mira. Mira, you, in in July, I believe, of 2020, you co-authored a survey um, by the Reuters Institute, um, uh, surveying journalists from around the world, I believe, um, to find out how they're coping doing their jobs during the pandemic. So in the study that you found, the majority of the respondents suffer from some levels of psychological stress and uh, distress, and 26% of them have clinically significant anxiety. And so 11% reported symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Were you surprised by these findings? Surprised? Yes, um, I think the survey was interesting in two ways, that it had a very high response rate for this kind of survey, 63%, which told you something, which told you that people wanted to talk about it and they pe- people wanted to get their their stories out there. And the other thing it told you, and the reason we got the, we, we kind of basically rushed the study out very quickly, because what we also found was that there were things at that stage that newsrooms could do. So we found that therapy, you know, we also found that, the journalists who were offered access to counselling um, had much better outcomes. So it wasn't just a kind of bleak story. 
I, we worked with Professor Anthony Feinstein, a psychiatrist who's worked with kind of worked on the issue of mental health amongst journalists. So he had an idea that this was a serious problem. Mm. Um, so it, it, we weren't surprised, but and I wouldn't say we were gratified because it was, it was not a pleasant finding, but it was in line with what we we had been expecting. So um, one of the links that. Uh, was found there was that all the reporters there like are are working on this pandemic story that impacts them directly. So as uh, Indigenous uh, and Black journalists, this is something that we experience, whether it's a pandemic or not. So like we're mostly reporting on traumatic, high stress stories and they affect us. Um, they've affected us, you know, for years. So what's your take on that? Yeah. I mean, it's there was a very significant story to be told in the fact that journalists, many journalists in our survey were experiencing what Indigenous racialized journalists experience, which is you report on a story that affects your community and your family and yourself very directly. So you have had the fear and, fear and the anxiety and the uncertainty and the stigma sometimes and that you're reporting on happening to other people. So how do you both maintain an objective tone and keep a hold a deep breath and kind of go, I can do this, I can do this. It's important that I do this, I don't fall apart. And it's a really difficult scenario, um, absolutely. And the other thing we found is, in, specifically in relation to COVID-19, is that um, you know ethnic minorities were being hit harder in Britain, certainly, and I think much of the world than much of the rest of the population. And you saw this in the medical sector, the first doctors to die in Britain of COVID were hospital doctors from, from South Asian descent, very, very commonly. So there's this kind of growing awful realization that not only is this a global story and a global tragedy, but your communities are being hit really hard. Um, yeah, it, it is It is really terrible. And the other issue that's spoken about to some extent is this concept of moral injury, so that you're reporting on a story and you can't take the actions that you would normally do, you would normally take. So you're reporting on someone who's being beaten by police officers or you're reporting on someone who can't hug their mum in their dying days. And your normal action as a human being would be to try and either protect someone or facilitate a meeting or, you know, do something. Mm. And you can't as a reporter, partly because it's against, it, it's not what you can do in your job, but also the circumstances in this case forbid it. And that in itself creates kind of stress and anxiety and a whole host of issues. Absolutely. Thank you. So I want to go to Adeline. So you know what it's like from both ends being Afro-Indigenous. Um, you kind of have, you know, this double impact. What do newsrooms need to like understand about the BIPOC reporting experience? Mostly that it's it's much more complex than um, a lot of their policies sometimes. Um, mm. And that uh, and that it's not it's not always easy to tell these stories. And that when you have connections with community, there's certain responsibilities. It's it's one of those things where I, I'm still trying to find the words for it. I'm still I'm still trying to figure out what what that is. Um, and I, I find writing to be really helpful for, for that. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm still I'm still I'm still figuring that out. Um, and I, I really wish that more newsrooms held space for when those um, those big stories come out, you know, um, 
when when they launched the um, the uh, the inquiry for um, MMIWG, <clears throat> um, you know, it would have been nice to have a couple of days off <laughs> after those after that release, you know, because that's heavy. It's heavy to be in a room where the TVs constantly are playing playing those things over and over again. You know, you got radio playing it. It's all it's all over the place. It could be really like it could be really daunting. Absolutely. I agree. Um, I just finished up my last chapter this week on an extensive series that I am uh, doing with Al Jazeera English. It's a six part chapter. Each chapter is three to 5,000 words. And we went to um, Northern BC to report there in early February. And it was the heaviest thing, the heaviest uh, story series that I've ever done. And I think maybe it's a maybe a combination of like the pandemic and the extensiveness of the story and the the stress and all that kind of stuff. And I definitely need a break as much as I want to go and do more. I need to take that break. So um, Leonard, how a paid break that because I feel like rest. I wish we're freelance. So that doesn't necessarily apply. (laughs) Um, It it would be amazing. It would be great, but you got to make up for it. Yeah. So um, how has it been for you, Leonard? So uh, how have you been dealing with, you know, the stress of the pandemic um, or even, you know, reporting um, about your communities in general? How do you combat that stress? What is it like? Um, I think for me personally, I had a really hard time adjusting to working from home last year. I think when the initial outbreaks were happening in Canada, there was a lot of stress and anxiety that came with it, like not knowing what's going to happen, how long is this going to be here? What are the adjustments from, you know, when you think about how radical the changes that are, that happen in our lives within, you know, from March to April were like very drastic, right? And that was a, a big adjustment period. And as somebody that's I pride myself on being tapped in and, and watching all of the conversations that are happening across social media in person, wherever, like <clears throat> just being overly consumed by news, 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 news. Mm. And that had an effect on me where I was like, okay, like I need to pull back from watching the national. I need to pull back from reading all of the COVID related stuff. Um, and just kind of recognizing that part where it's like, okay, like I need to compartmentalize where I'm seeing the information and how I'm taking in that information. And you know, trying to, to push through, um, going back to what you and Adeline were talking about, like capitalism doesn't allow for us to fully feel what we need to feel. It's like, you know, we're, we're going through stress, we're going through anxiety, we're going through grief, we're going through all of these different emotions. And it's like, you have to go to work tomorrow, otherwise you're not going to be able to do your job or you're not going to be able to pay your bills in a lot of instances, right? And so we don't have that, time to actually feel what we're feeling and just go through it like we normally would. And so that's one of the bigger barriers. And then also over the last little while, like I think February, I think I just started to feel really differently. I was like, Oh shit. Like I'm kind of in my own space. I'm not really like, um, I'm not feeling like myself. I it, is, is weird would be the best way to describe how I was feeling. Like it felt like everything was off. Mm. And then I started to feel like, you know, March was, an incredibly busy month for me. It was probably the busiest month that I've had in two years. Um, and all of this is being done from home. Right. And, and, and that kind of stuff catches up to you where it's like, um, work, 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 work. And then on top of that, it's like 
family issues. Uh, I've got, you know, things that are happening to my kids where they're trying to maintain their own mental health issues mm. on top of, you know, family conflict. Like my family leans on me a lot and they're still going through a lot of shit. And so I was yeah. trying to balance out all of that and then recognizing that, you know, how much of an impact does social media play on my own mental health where, you know, there's so many conversations that are happening and the pressure to, to say, you know, how come you're not saying anything about this particular topic or how come you're not, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, shit, man, like I'm just trying to make sure that yeah. I'm maintaining my sanity in this one spot. And I know that when I come out on the other end of it, I'll still be there, right? I'll still be the person that I need to be for myself and for my family and for my community. But like recognizing where those breaks need to take place and saying, yeah. you know what, like for my own sanity, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to play NHL 21 for three hours. <laughs> and, you know, I'm going to go for a walk and I'm not going to feel guilty about it. Yeah. Right? So it's recognizing that where, you know, even last year, the last five years, like I'm going to start conversations and people are going to jump in and debate each other over the last year. I'm like, you know what? Like people have gone through so much shit collectively that I don't want to add into anyone arguing. And like, I'm not even going to get into arguments online anymore because like, I just need to protect my own mental health. Wow. It's so powerful. And then you talked about feeling guilty. I don't know about you all, but I feel guilty when I feel like I'm not doing it all because we, because I specifically report on indigenous stories. I feel that if I don't do them, other people aren't going to do them because there's so few of us. I feel like there's just this huge expectation and responsibility on us. And you want to fulfill that. You want to be able to do that and give voice to, uh, you know, our people and, and, and showcase, you know, different things. But when it comes, when it becomes too much, you carry that guilt. And Leonard, I heard you, you like, you had to just separate yourself from that, you know, and let it go when you thought you weren't doing enough. And yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult balance, right? Like I, I want to be tapped in. I want to see the conversations that are happening in real time, but I, it's just, you know, I, I've over the last little while, it's been stressful. There's been pandemic fatigue. There's been burnout. Yeah. I'm trying not to like completely hit a wall where I feel completely burnt out. And so recognizing that I need to take breaks in between these times Right. And, and who knows, like June or July or August, maybe I'll feel better about it. Yeah. And, and just kind of recognizing when I need to take a break without feeling guilty about it. Yeah. So, Anna, so you've been a journalist for about a year now um, and you work at Indigenous, which is a revolutionary um, organization with the things that you and your team are doing. So uh, Indigenous uh, incorporates a decolonial like way of operating in the newsroom. And your experiences there have been really, really good. Can you tell us a little bit about how things work? Absolutely. So um, the pandemic came about just as I was coming off of one year maternity leave. So I had a baby and I was at home. So there wasn't a lot of initial changes for me um, because I was at home anyways. And, um, you know, I have stepchildren and we had had to adjust in that way. So that was challenging. But reentering, working full time um, as a as a mom, as a new mom um, had its challenges. But I felt really privileged to have um, Emily Gilpin, um, our managing editors, uh, editor, as well as Lindsay Sample, reach out uh, to me with a potential position uh, with Indigenous as a child welfare reporter. Um, and I don't have a formal background in journalism. 
I did a degree in First Nations and Indigenous Studies at UBC and have spent most of my working life working with Indigenous youth in foster care. So I have that frontline lens and they were like, don't worry, just come on board and we'll teach you like the journalistic style. We just want your lens and your connection to community. And um, it's been really fabulous. Like every Wednesday we have some kind of training, whether it's with the Journalists for Human Rights or Brandy, you came on initially and Leonard, you've come on and, and chatted with us. So we've just kind of been, you know, thrown into the deep end, um, which has had its challenges for sure. I've had like a lot of self-doubt um, and also reporting on um, child welfare issues on Vancouver Island um, can be just like heart-wrenching, devastating. So I've had to be really careful with my spirit and um, be able to um, have a balance, sharing stories in a good way, highlighting the good that's happening in our communities as well as the challenges that we're experiencing. And um, our newsroom, it's funny, like I've actually, I've only met a couple of my colleagues in person a number of times. For the most part, our relationship, our newsroom has been entirely online. Yeah. Um, so Mondays, um, we definitely, we, we connect um, in our newsroom and we hold space for talking about our weekends, talking about our kids. Um, some of my colleagues um, participate in ceremony over the weekend. So we, we hold that space for each other to talk about things that are going on in our lives. Um, similarly, if there's, you know, a big... Um, something big happening in the news, like we're Indigenous reporters. So um, Joyce Eshaquan, when that was happening in the news, like we were all gutted and we brought that into our newsroom and um, space for each other um, to talk about it and then came up with a plan um, how we wanted to um, shapeshift our newsroom to honour her life and to tell stories um, related to Indigenous women's experiences in the healthcare system. That's something really rare that you have. Like I said, it's revolutionary. Um, so I, I applaud Emily, your editor, and, and everything that's going on there. So, um, Mira, I was wondering, um, how can newsrooms better support jur- journalists right now? You know, whether they're BIPOC journalists or journalists dealing with anxiety, um, you know, and stress from the pandemic. I think the very practical thing is make sure there is counselling available and that that counselling is made available um, and there's buy-in from the top. So senior editors, senior leaders are both seen to both endorse the services and also use them, you know, which is the crucial thing. Make sure that, you know, everybody who needs um, counselling uses it at all levels. That's the kind of very practical thing, but I appreciate that's both expensive and something that only really works in kind of larger, you know, in, in newsrooms, which, you know, which a lot of freelancers don't necessarily have the have the access to. Mm-hmm. I think on, on a very, very, very practical note as well, just accept the time pressures people are under and the health pressures people are under. What we're trying to say is, you know, the, the idea of coming into work when you're feeling under the weather or feeling that, calling in for a sick day is somehow going to be detrimental to your career or get you moved off a story that that has to stop it's it you know we have we've had a pandemic that proves that this attitude is not only unproductive it's just downright dangerous so it's just complete mind shift in how we deal with this issue of um of health and that and ill health is something that comes to us all in different ways. Some of it is physical ill health. Some of it is mental ill health, a recognition that frequently now the two are linked. Mm. And so dealing, you can't deal with one unless you deal with the other. And, and conversely, dealing with one will help you deal with the other. I think you'll get a lot, you know, if you 
prioritize people's physical well-being you're also essentially also prioritizing their mental well-being and vice versa so i think those those kind of mind mind shift uh, diff, shifts and then the other one about it's about diversity in the newsroom because you, you you've all spoken a great deal about how you feel under pressure in certain circumstances and what you need is enough of you enough of us in in the newsroom to have a voice and you again you need senior people um, mm-hmm. to be diverse and to represent these communities as well because that's where the decision making and the power structures ultimately are that, that might take a while because I, I I see that there are a lot of um, you know new and mid-level you know journalists of color but there's not a whole lot that are in you know ready for that you know responsibility right so it might take a while to make that shift but it's definitely important now I was wondering, are conversations around mental health in the newsroom, are they quite new? Um, no, because if you, we all know the stereotype of a returning war correspondent with mm-hmm. a, probably with an alcohol problem, a failing marriage, issues over anger, and everyone knows that these are mental health issues. And this is a stereotype of correspondents that have existed for decades, so mental health problems in the newsroom are certainly not new and an awareness of them are not new. What's different is the profile of people experiencing trauma is changing, partly mm. because different kinds of people are going out to war zones, partly because of the barriers to entry to go out with a camera, you know, it's lower, you can get more people. And also because the front line is changing. So now there are riots, there are, you know, yeah. the hospital wards, the streets, the the kind of the streets that you live in can be where the front line is and where you kind of experience danger and trauma. So all these, all these reasons, and then social media brings on another kind of front line, the both the, what you see on social media and also a lot, a lot of abuse that women and people of color often receive on social media journalists included. So there are lots of kind of places where you come to conflict in the course of your reporting. So I think there's kind of an awareness that, more people are experiencing danger in their work as a journalist and the type of people who are experiencing this danger is also changing. But your survey saw that more and more journalists want to talk about this and want to access the resources to deal with it. Yes. I mean, our survey was a survey of international, large international news organizations. So these are journalists who are aware that their employers have the resources and the ability to provide counseling and have, have to be on a some level of a safety net like they're not yeah you know they 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 have usually most of them have a kind of regular paycheck or a regular gig which is again mm. a massive privilege i know these days um, but in in that context yes they, there was a sense that people wanted to talk about it they wanted solidarity they wanted understanding and then they wanted access to professional services professional counseling and therapy as well yeah, yeah. so leonard um what specifically are you doing to stay healthy and how did you go about implementing or discovering that um, for yourself? Um, from a mental health perspective, I, th- I, I do think like the, the, the knowing when to disengage part has been really important to me. Um, last year sometime I implemented my own rule where it's like, I'm not going to argue with people online after 10 o'clock. Right. Like I'm not going to engage because like I'm going to go to sleep pissed off and I'm going to wake up pissed off and I'm going to feel shitty about it. And it's like, okay, like I'm not doing that anymore. And then that kind of shifted over to last year to like, I'm not even engaging with people where I'm even getting into fights online. Right. Because the, 
the social media realm has gotten so polarized over the last four years. And, you know, it's been lucky. We've been lucky to not have as many arguments as, as there have been, you know, over the last couple of months, you know? And so um, from that personal perspective, like, you know, another personal social media rule that I have is like, I'm not going to engage in online debates where I can't fully say what I want to say. And so if I'm going to say something, I'm not going to let you one up me if I can't really say what I want to say. So therefore I'm not going to engage. Um, And that's a, you know, I see so many people arguing about vaccinations, about politics. And I'm like, you know, like you got to be able to learn when to protect your own energy, right? Like at the end of the day, we're all on lockdown or a lot of us are in places where there's restrictions and, you know, you, you, you have to be able to, um, you know, take, take these into consideration. And so here we just finished going into a, another three week lockdown, which started last week. Um, and for me, we, uh, we have, a we have a, a dog that's five months old and, and, you know, being able to leave the house almost every single day where it's like, we're leaving for a short walk during the workday. And then after work, we'll go out for a walk for an hour and a half. Right. And that's been like hugely, um, beneficial to my mental health just to be outside. We're not on the phone yeah. We're with the dogs. We're getting a break from the work. We're, you know, getting out and feeling the sunshine, and so a lot of, um, you know, a lot of it is, is sort of dis- knowing when to disengage from, from the things that occupy our mind, but also being outside and being able to um, uh, enjoy the sun. Definitely. Thank you. So I wanted to share, um, I have found the past year since the pandemic has broke up personally to be like the hardest year that I've experienced as a journalist, even though I've been doing high stress stories for years. So uh, I have felt that, you know, uptick, but last summer um, when George Floyd was murdered, there was so much uh, going on around the world with the protests and so much talk in the media about racism um, I was doing a lot of, uh, you know, work in that, whether I was commentating or writing or reporting on it, you, you there was this, this high level of, um, like, there was this vibration that I think that was felt across the board that everybody, uh, you know, it was very, very t- intense. Um, and it went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, at the same time, I was sent out on several back-to-back stories that were, again, high stress. And I went to this one um, territory in northern BC. I was at Wet'suwet'en Territory. And before I left, I was advised by um, a former manager or former editor of mine who's now like a mentor to to go and buy myself a gas mask in case something were to go down there because it was around like pipeline protests and stuff. And just going and doing the act of buying this uh, gas mask was really traumatic in itself because it's this physical representation of us being in danger. And I find even as an indigenous woman, when we're out on the job, we feel more in danger as it is because we are susceptible susceptible to uh, being targeted for violence. So I went out there on this um, this story, and I was there for a couple of weeks. But again, the sto- the story that I was reporting on there was also really really intense, and it affected me so much 
that I started having nightmares in my hotel room. I was waking up in like sweats with my heart, heart rating racing and I stopped not sleeping well. And this carried on after I left for several weeks and I got sent to more stories and I wanted to do them. I was very passionate about doing them all, but I actually had to go to my doctor and get prescription sleeping pills in order to sleep through the night because it was affecting me. Time for a break here on Moment of Truth. We'll be right back with more of our special presentation and rebroadcast of a Journalist for Human Rights webinar regarding mental health and Indigenous journalists right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. This is a special rebroadcast of a Journalist for Human Rights webinar regarding mental health and Indigenous journalists. It was recorded on May 13th, moderated by Brandy Morin. So when Mira was saying, like, the mental health and the stress can can is very linked to the physical. And if you're not taking care of that, it's going to... Um, you know, it's going to do you a lot of harm. And I had to force myself to take two weeks off after that. And there's still been times, you know, since then um, where I've helped, I have felt similar, but um, I, I just wanted to share that with you to see maybe what your feedback is on that. And specifically like Adeline, what has your experience been and like what keeps you grounded, especially lately? Uh therapy. Yes. (laughs) I just, I just learned that Indian Affairs offers like 22 sessions or 60 sessions now um, uh, for counseling or therapy, but um, therapy has been like my savior of all, because for me personally, I have my, my, I have my foot in so many different things um, that sometimes there's certain things that happen within our community that explode. It's this big thing. And I can't always be talking to other community members about these things because they're going through mm-hmm. the, the response of certain things. And so I'm like, okay, we, we can't be putting this, this weight on each other. And so what I found really helpful is, is going to therapy, unpacking that with somebody outside of our community um, or not, not the community essentially, but outside of the industry, I should say um, outside of the industry who can, possibly see things that I don't see. Um, Cause sometimes I just, I get mad, you know, <laughs> and I oh, yeah. <laughs> that I probably shouldn't say, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, you know, it's for me, it's really just figuring it out. Um, it's not every day that I'm the most focused. It's not every day that I'm, and I accept that there's days where I get up and I'm like, okay, Adeline, you're not going to be able to do anything. Like yesterday, that was my day. There was some news that came out and I was like, okay, this is just taking all my energy. I accept that. And I'm just going to go sit in the sun all day. And that's exactly what I did. So it's even just giving myself permission, you know? Yeah. No, exactly. And doesn't it feel like um, freeing to be able to openly express and talk about it rather than trying to pretend like you have everything together? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because people think that about me. They think I have it together. I'm like, no, I don't. I'm a crazy woman. <laughs> no, and that's why I think this is so great that we're having public discussions such as this, right? Because this is real life. We're human beings. A lot of times we're taught, you know, people that go to journalism school or, you know, learn the standard that we're supposed to be disassociated, robotic 
um, objective, but we're human beings. And I don't think that any of us will ever be unaffected by stories that we cover. Um, and Anna, I was just wondering, um, can you share what it's like to carry the weight of the difficult stories? So for instance, like for me, I find that I, I'm really quite impacted by the stories because again, most of them are very, um, trauma and, and intense, uh, high stress stories. But I find that after I get them out, after they're done or written or whatever, that I kind of like release them. And I feel that relief after that. Um, that's how I deal with that. But what is it like for you to carry the weight uh, of the stories reporting, um, on child welfare, which is a, a crisis happening here in, in so-called Canada? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that really resonates with me, Brandy, hitting the publish button and getting it out into the into the world. And, you know, we sit with stories um, and in the child welfare space, I'll often sit with some really, really um, challenging stories. And that's been hard for me. It's not new for me hearing about hard stories, but I feel um, like you said, sort of a responsibility to hold on to the story, recognize the story, carry it in a good way, write it, which is um, cathartic for me, um, and then sharing that with the world um, and sharing the weight of that is really, really helpful for me. Um, But also, like you said, it's, it's, we can't separate our lived realities, lived experience uh, experiences as indigenous peoples um, from the stories that are coming into our inboxes um, or the story pitches that we get or what we hear and see in community. So um, it has been incredibly challenging. I have recently started seeing a therapist, um, finding out that there's funding through the First Nations Health Authority here for um, intergenerational survivors of residential school. That's something that's in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a really, really difficult year. So um, another um, thing that I like to do um, is to uplift um, the good that's happening. And when I started in, at Indigenous, we did um, like a broad community outreach. And I you know, just made some calls and connected with some youth workers, with some delegated Aboriginal agencies and with youth and asked, what, how do you want to see um, Indigenous uh, reflect the stories that are going on here in Vancouver Island. Mm-hmm. And what I heard was that there needed to be a reflection of what's, what is happening, but also the good that's going on. So Absolutely. you did that story with Angela Starrett on how she um, takes care of her spirit. We just recently did a Q&A with Top Chef Canada contestant Siobhan from Cowichan Tribes, and she is just phenomenally strong. So it's a real balance. Um, but I have to say the birth alerts investigation that we did, it like ravaged my spirit um, as a mom, as somebody that birthed in hospital. So it's, it's taken me a long time to, um, and I'm still reconciling with it because I still feel the weight of it and um, the messages that people sent to my email and some of the images that I got and the information I got around that. And yeah, it's really, really difficult. Yeah, it can be. So what other things do you do personally to take care of yourself? Do you say put, uh, you know, attention to, you know, exercise or eating healthy or what are what are some things that you find that helps to keep your mental health good um, and, and the way that you feel physically? Yeah, I set intentions every week and I do my best to just keep my head above water. I'm a mom of three, so my priorities 
um, caring for myself haven't always come first. So I'm shifting that, or I have been shifting that and um, carving out some more time just for myself, whether that's, you know, an hour after everybody goes to bed with a big bowl of popcorn and just rip through a show on, you know, on Crave. I've been watching Insecure. I really like that show. Um, I also got a pandemic puppy. So we have this dog that <laughs> takes her walks. I live um, right by the water. So my mom who lives with right. us um, encourages me to, to get out for a walk every single day. And yeah, sleep is um, really, really important. What I'm eating, I'm constantly like looking at, you know, um, at things to be eating to fuel my body and to fuel my family's bodies. Um, so yeah, I, I, I do my best to set intentions um, at the beginning of the week and don't always um, you know, hit the mark on everything, but I'm e- I have um, been easy on myself when I don't check all the boxes. And yeah, wonderful. That's that's great. Thank you. So, um, Adeline, I just want to ask you. So, like, there's a lot of different stresses that come with our job. So, um, you'd like to see more journalists of color in the newsroom. This is something that I've been hearing for a long time now from so many people, whether it's from BIPOC journalists or editors, um, you know, saying we need more, we need more, but why is it important and how do you think it could be done? How do you bring in more? How do we attract more people uh, to get into this, you know, industry? That's a good question. Um, (laughs) I, I think creating more capacity is, is really important. Um, I, I recognize how uh, a lot of the times it's, it's up to us to do that. That's what it ends up falling on. It ends up falling on the communities um, that those, that the people come from having to create that our own space. Um, But yeah, I think creating more capacity is, is definitely one. I feel like, you know, when Leonard mentioned, you know, he's, he's been, you know, getting that paid training, you know, like we need Mm. more of that. Um, That's, that's really important as well. Um, But yeah, you know, it's, I, I just, I, I, I'm always weirded out by when people tell stories from other communities. I'm like, you know, um, and I, I get sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it's going to happen, but I would love to see more people from, from those communities reporting mm. on those communities, mm. you know, when, when the, um, the Asian hate uh, was starting to happen. Like I would have loved to hear from, from the Asian community more than, you know, the white community essentially about what was happening. So I just feel like when, when certain things happen within our, in our society that are, critical I, I would rather hear from those people who come from that community so have you ever been told by uh, an editor or news organization that you shouldn't be reporting on your own communities because I have they've said you shouldn't be reporting on indigenous stories because you're indigenous well I'm like well then you can't just send a you know a non-indigenous person on to a non-indigenous story like or a black person you can't send them to a a black person story like it just doesn't make sense right have you ever encountered that and what do you think i haven't encountered that because i feel like what other stories am i gonna tell you know like i just it doesn't yeah i I haven't encountered that but i'm i'm sure it happens wow well that's so good mira did you have something to say 
I did. I was going. To, yeah, I just want to say we, we've been discussing diversity in the newsroom, and a lot of this comes down to redefining what the concept of objectivity means. Mm-hmm. The, the scenario you talk about, um, Randy, is that you can't be objective covering your own community or your own story. Now, this only seems to apply to. Yeah, people of color, minorities, indigenous communities. No one goes and tells a white guy we don't yeah. think you're objective enough to be covering, you know, politics, which is also full of white guys. No one <laughs> assumes that there is a kind of problem of objectivity there. The object is a problem. It's only an issue with people outside exactly. that kind of norm. And it, it's women, which you know, I wouldn't, even, you know, it's not about minorities. It's just about who do, who's who's seen as subjective, and we have to kind of be open about saying that what many newsrooms see as objective is a kind of very mainstream masculine often position. Yes. And so this scenario of who should be telling these stories falls down on the fact, the idea that you can't tell these stories because you can't be objective. But then of course, as you rightly point out, well, other people can't tell these stories because they don't understand or they don't have the same connections or on a very, you know, on the quotidian no, they don't have the contacts. They don't have the sources. So we are, we ha- you have the access and the yes, exactly, and the desire to tell it and the knowledge on how to tell it and the trust of the audiences. Yep. who want yep. to read these stories exactly, and that's how to do it right. Right, that's how you're going. You know, to get uh, the best the best job done. As absolutely. So, I wanted to actually have a conversation quick here about safety on the job. So as a, like I said, as a woman, I have felt my safety threatened at times, um, not only as a woman, but as an indigenous woman. Um, have any of you experienced that? And, you know, what do you do? How do you keep yourself safe on the job? And Leonard, you can chime into this too, just, <laughs> you know, um, but Anna, um, you have a way of checking in with each other sometimes, right? Uh, what is... You know, what what has been your experience there? Yeah, so for me, most of my work as a journalist has has been from home because of the pandemic. Um, But some of my colleagues in the Okanagan have gone to, you know, community events and rallies and have um, felt physically unsafe or have been followed or stalked. Um, So that's a conversation that we have um, brought forward in our newsroom and across the board, like all of us have experienced some form of either being like followed or um, sexually harassed. So this is a common thread that all of us experience both as Indigenous journalists, but also just as Indigenous women. So yeah, we we communicate a lot. We check in with each other and we know as Indigenous peoples that um, there's always that threat to our life to our lives like it's it's just part of our lived realities and I'm constantly trying to process it now especially as the mom of an indigenous daughter um having to have that that conversation with her down the line I, I don't know what that looks like yet um but yeah it's it's something that we're very real about in our newsroom so you know when the riots and stuff were happening last year and a little bit this year, but we've seen um, some journalists that were targeted. You know in the U.S. Um, during some of the uh, rioting and different or the, the protests and, and demonstrations there, um, I think that that's probably going to keep escalating. I think that those kind of scenarios are going to be. Um, 
become more and more common for us in, in our jobs. And even, you know, there's been times when I've been out at uh, demonstrations or like pipeline conflicts or different things like that, when you're, you know, put in danger. Leonard, have you ever thought about that and what you would do in those situations? You must have thought about it when you've seen the coverage happening, you know, last year when the journalists were getting their eyes shot uh, and things like that. Um, what are your what are your thoughts on, you know, preparing or the possibility of that, you know, of, of having to go into that? Like I've had colleagues from APTN, where I used to work, the Aboriginal People's Television Network, they were at Standing Rock, they were tear gassed and, you know, right on the front lines of these major conflicts. But just wondering what your thoughts are on that, Leonard, and would you go out and and cover something like that, knowing that you could be in danger? Uh, personally, I mean, personally, yeah, I would, I would be willing to go and cover those kind of things, but also at the same time, I think it goes back to the objectivity question and whether or not, uh, I'm the suitable candidate to go on these, on, on these types of jobs based mm-hmm. on, uh, you know, some of my previous, um, statements or whatever, you know, and so that's the back to the objectivity question is that can people like myself report in an objective way when a lot of times people like myself are viewed as activist journalists. Right. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I obviously would, and I, I try to bring that perspective and bring my perspective and bring my full self to, uh, the newsroom, but also to the sto- types of stories that, uh, I'm doing. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, uh, very important, but, uh, yeah. I would love to do that kind of stuff. I just don't know if I would be assigned that kind of stuff. (laughs) So uh, Adeline, how do you keep safe on the job? Well, it's since, since the murder of of George Floyd, um, I've been doing a lot of um, behind the scenes work, I guess you can say um, in terms of really making change with the broadcasting act um, Lots, lots, lots of behind the scenes stuff. We're trying to bring people on board, creating capacity, all that other stuff. And with that, you know, when people know who you are and who's doing that work, you can, I've been threatened numerous times. Mm. I've had colleagues who have had things sent to their place. Um, And so last year, last year, safety was a, was a big, huge thing for us. And, and what does that look like? What does that mean for everybody? And that really means just putting on my anti-pants and making sure that people are, are protected and people are safe as much as I can possibly can with whatever power I have. Um, but it's mostly I've been just I've been just trying to stay inside. Um, yeah. And and try to do things quietly. That's mm-hmm. one of the things I've been doing is just try to do things quietly. Um, Cause I feel like when you're loud, people will come for you. Yes. Yes. Can, uh, can, oh. can I just say something really quickly? Yeah. Um, Adeline, your, your zoom lighting is amazing right now. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> She's eliminated. <laughs> so Mira, I'm just wondering, do you know if like, are you aware of any like training support programs for journalists or anything experiencing trauma? Do you know of like anything online or offered somewhere? 
The DART Center offers a lot of kind of resources. What are they called? D-A-R-T, the DART Center in New York, um, part of Columbia, I think. They offer a lot of resources um, online. For freelancers, the Rory Peck Trust, again, offers resources and support for journalists online. And there are various, various foundations are beginning to offer support, but... Again, it's it's kind of the needs are so individual. Like each individual yeah. needs a different package. That really, I think, kind of really the kind of programs you've been describing, where you kind of journeys are offered, you know, communities are offered access to counsellors so that they can then build their own relationship with the counsellor and kind of work through what they need on an individual basis. I think it's really important. I'd like to see more of that as well. But those two are kind of good starting points. And do you have like? Um, like some advice to offer, you know, journalists, um, a future outlook. Do you think things will get better? Do you think they'll stay the same for a while? I think what's interesting, if we talk about COVID-19 in particular, is that we're going touch wood. And if, you know, things go, we're kind of get, getting vaccine, vaccine programs roll out and people are emerging into reality. But we're, I also get the sense we're rushing back into a kind of into what we'll do in the real life without having processed what's happened to us in mm. the lockdown and in the pandemic. So I feel there may be a kind of delayed reaction where we kind of think, okay, it's fine. We can go out now, we can go to restaurants, we can get back to the office. And then a year down the line, you kind of go, oh my God, what was that? And, um, you know, so I think, and not losing the lessons that we've learned, you know, the kind of things that have been discussed in this in this panel, you know, look after yourself, take time for yourself, get out into the fresh air, switch off social media at 10 o'clock, don't get into fights. <laughs> it's really important that we remember this. Absolutely. Thank you. So um, I'd like to do just a quick round of self-care tips really quick. I know some of you already shared them. Um, I'll share mine. Gosh, self-care would be... Uh, going outside, leaving my house, which I'm at almost 24 seven in this pandemic and going for a walk somewhere in nature is really helpful and powerful and having somebody to talk to having supports. We can be really isolated where we are and I'm really good at just being focused and busy on my work, but not having those outside connections, which are so crucial to our well-being, that um, that is so important to establish those uh, relationships. So let's just give a few little quick bullet pointers from each of us. Self-care tips. Anna. <laughs> Take your vitamin D, drink lots yes. of water, and go to bed earlier than you think. <laughs> Absolutely. Sleep is key. Sleep is so crucial. That's the Mama Anna coming through. Enough <laughs> water. Leonard. Um, for me, for me, it's like kind of finding that finding the things that you actually like to do, right, and and getting out to doing them. If it's reading yeah. a book or if it's playing video games, um, but yeah, checking in with people when you need to, I think, is a, a big important one. Um, oftentimes like, you know, we kind of just push through and we push through and we push through without being like, okay, like actually need to, I might need to talk to somebody right now. Right. And that's something that a lot of people I think don't always take into consideration. Absolutely. Thank you. Adeline. Yeah. Everything Anna and Leonard said, um, 
And uh, one of the things that I, I started doing, because I'm away from home, um, and so staying connected with some of my relatives back home has been really important to me. Um, so every Sunday, I meet with a couple of friends on, on Sunday through Zoom. We call it Sacred Sunday, where we get up early, have coffee with each other, and just gab about our weeks, mm-hmm. whatever it is that we're going through. Um, and yeah, it really is. It really is. It actually brought us closer. It actually brought us closer. We are way more closer now. And it's kind of like a breather. It's something you can look forward to something out of all this, you know, craziness sometimes. Right. So yeah, yeah, great idea. Exactly. Yeah. So we just, we just come together and just talk about what we're all going through because a lot of us are taking up spaces and spaces we've never taken up spaces before, you know, and so we're all kind of navigating new experiences. And so coming together and, and sharing what we're going through and are we crazy? Is this, am I, you know, is this, yeah. is this racist? <laughs> you know, those, those certain things. Um, but yeah, that's been really, really helpful for me. Uh, and I have a pandemic puppy as well. She's been, she's been really helpful because I'm away from home. Um, and yeah, just, again, just being connected to community is my, my medicine. Awesome. And um, Mira, uh, some few more tips from you and uh, just wondering, actually I had one question too, before that should journalists be encouraged to reach out when they're struggling? Yes, absolutely. In everything we look at, whether it's the issues of media freedom or online attacks or mental health amongst journalists, the key thing that is helpful is solidarity, the ability to kind of support each other, acknowledge each other's problems, and then start to seek help. So absolutely, you must reach out because you are doing something for yourself, but you're really doing something for the person you're reaching out to because the chances are they also need some support and some help. And by reaching out, you're kind of creating the path to a conversation that will benefit both of you and everybody else around you. So absolutely do reach out. Um, And it's also very important to kind of remove the stigma from this, to normalize these conversations. And again, have the buy-in from the people that people look up to, the kind of the community leaders, the star journalists, the senior editors, the popular journalists, you know, everybody has these issues. So absolutely. In terms of tips, absolutely. I also have a pandemic puppy, so I fully go with that. And um, what I found useful is taking advantage of lockdown to figure out what working day works for me. So which hours work to make sure that I'm both productive and rested. And I found that I'm, I actually really like waking up with the sun, really like waking up early, just having a coffee and getting some work done and then stopping and going out for a walk, clearing my head, having something to eat and then starting with meetings. And it took, you know, this kind of way of working for me to figure that out. And it's been really useful. So I'd like to continue that. No, that's great. And I recently started implementing that too, after having a conversation with a mentor about struggling during the day and having these lapses. And she's like, okay, when are you at your most alert and strongest? Block off that time. So before I would have like, a mixture of meetings and, and classes and, and, and assignments and writing. And I would just like chop them up all throughout the day and put them. But now I've made sure to block off all my mornings for specifically writing 
because that's when I met my most alert and I work till about noon or one, take a tiny, you know, a little break. And then I go into my meetings or the, you know, the classes and stuff and doing that time blocking has been absolutely incredible. And I'm thinking it's so simple. Like, why didn't I know of this before? But it's actually works just like if you, if you, if you're more alert or do your best work in the afternoon then time block to do your most challenging work at that time and, you know, go from there. So absolutely that. That's awesome. Awesome advice that worked for me. So I just want to remind our viewers to please fill out the survey that um, is below the video. There's a button to fill out the survey for journalists for human rights. And if you fill it out, you get a $5 Tim's card. <laughs> so we appreciate um, you joining us today. Um, thank you to all the panelists. I think I'm going to, am I handing it over to Sarah now or how are we working uh, are we doing an outro? Am I doing an outro? <laughs> we are. Yeah, you can absolutely hand it over to me. <laughs> thank you. That's all right. Um, so again, thank you so much to everybody who has joined us here today. And huge, huge, huge thank you to all of our panelists and our moderator, Brandy, for speaking so honestly about this difficult topic, um, about something that I think is on everybody's minds or many people's minds, and it's hard sometimes to get it out of your head and out into the world. You've been listening to a special Moment of Truth this evening and a rebroadcast of a Journalist for Human Rights webinar regarding mental health and Indigenous journalists, moderated by Brandy Morin. I'm your host of Moment of Truth, David Moses. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.